Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Armando Luna. I'm Joan Pettit, broadcasting from our homes in Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. And I'm Aaron Flores. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. We cover bicycling, trains and transit, infrastructure, adventures, and today, rethinking streets during COVID-19 with Mark Schlossberg and Rebecca Lewis. Yeah, yeah. rethinking streets. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about this. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. keep rethinking uh, streets, totally. reclaiming them. If there's any positive thing to come out of this global pandemic, I think this is, this is quite possibly it. I'm not going to spend too much time. I mean, I feel like it's been pretty good for dogs, but okay. uh, and pets. But yes, that that's a much <laughs> bigger yes. point. And and emissions. And uh, anyway, yeah, exactly. no dogs are like, "Hey, you're home," and cats are like, "No, go away. Go back to work. <laughs> Why are you here all the time? <laughs> How am I supposed to unroll the toilet paper?" <laughs> We can't even keep the toilet paper on the roll in my house. <laughs> like every few months we try. <laughs> and and, how, and just, how long just does piles. It uh, it get, like I go into the bathroom and there's just like little shreds of toilet paper on oh, the foot. I mean, it's funny, except it's just a bit wasteful. And the whole thing will be like unraveled. It'll be like half the roll. <laughs> I think it works like that with children also. I think if it's, you have the roll on the wall with the spinner thing, they're just like, and when it's not, they tend to just take what they need. Armando, are you suggesting that my kids and not my cats are the ones unraveling my toilet paper? <laughs> my teenagers? Uh, that's the experience that has been in my house. <laughs> They've, they're just Stop blaming looking. the cats. They're Stop just... blaming it on the cat. Yeah, I've never had my cat do it. <laughs> that's what the cat said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, how are y'all doing? Hey. Not too hey. bad. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of uh, not the wisest use of resources. <laughs> Was it a, this toilet paper flight you were on? Speaking of strange things that may or may not be related to the pandemic. Right. Uh, Aaron's uh, got a new way of traveling. <laughs> I got to fly a private jet uh, in all the way up to Seattle, which was like a 20 minute flight, but <laughs> still it's cool. You got a, I got a plane all to myself. That's cool. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool until you think too much about it. So I'm not going to think too much about it other than the fact that the circumstances lined up and it was a lot of fun. Um, and I had to, she got called in last minute to do this flight. The flight was far enough delayed that all the actual pain passengers were diverted to other flights um, and then right. for reasons that are a little bit more complicated than I could explain or even understand, uh, they still had to fly the plane to Seattle, even if I volunteered to, you know, stay here. Well, it was a food pickup, right? 
No, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's what it was. Yeah, we went to Seattle to, to have dinner. <laughs> well, so she's a wait. She's so she for folks who don't know, she's a flight oh, attendant. Yes, she's a flight attendant. Uh, and uh, so wait, was she on the flight? She was called to work the flight. Oh, she was called to work the flight, and then you were right. going to tag along. And yeah, I was like, well, uh, like on the family Seattle. thing, I'll, I'll, just, to... I'll just go hang out with you and we can have dinner in Seattle together, you know? Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah, nice and romantic. And then uh, I often like to time. jet off to Seattle on a plane with oh, my yeah. partner for dinner. I mean, yeah. I, I suggest if I had a dime can get on a flight for free. <laughs> so legally. Le- yeah, totally. <laughs> So, yeah, but I think sometimes they just have to, like, they need the plane to be in Seattle or whatever for another. Yes. So it, it needed to go anyway. So, wait, she was on the flight. She, she but worked the flight along with another flight attendant. That's weird. So she had to give you the safety talk? Yes. FAA regulations. <laughs> she still had to give me the talk. Did, she, did you, have you been on a fl- another flight where she's worked? Uh, I'm I'm looking across the room to her. I would imagine so, been, so right? Is, is this? It might be our second time where she worked a flight that I was a passenger on. Second or third time? Yeah. Um, That's weird. It's weird when you know you're in a professional role and your people you know are there. Well, so the first time it was like a full flight, so I could easily just kind of like <laughs> you know hide. And we could pretend you didn't we listen. And then, you didn't listen when your partner was giving the safety talk. Oh no, I always listen to my partner. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she's not our biggest supporter on Patreon. I mean, she's, she's just sitting in the living room playing the <laughs> Nintendo Switch as I record this. So, so um, yeah, but we got, we got dinner in seattle together i got a private flight she still had to do the safety demo and it was very difficult not to try to mess her up and also i think i guess i won't speak too much for her but i i think it was kind of difficult for her to do the whole demo um for Just one person who's her partner. <laughs> right. Well, and here's a the bit thing. awkward. <laughs> because I was the only person on the flight, I sat in the front in, in fr- first class. Um, and <laughs> the other flight attendant who, you know, is assigned the the rear of the cabin. <laughs> she just hung out back there pretty much for the whole flight. But she still had to do like all of her things, like reading reading all of her announcements and everything. Oh, she had to do that stuff too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> FAA regulations. Because they it. would have to do it even if the plane was empty. Well, I think that's the one exception. Yeah. But it wasn't empty. Because that would be considered a, what is called like a ferry flight. Like they're ferrying the, the Right. Uh, the so there's different rules for different, that. Right. Um, but since a passenger, even though it's just me, they still went through the whole thing. Um, yeah, I got, I did get scolded because I, I got a little too disruptive during one of the announcements where they were <laughs> congratulating the uh, the medallion flyers, and I started <laughs> clapping. I was like, "Yeah, medallion flyers!" <laughs> did they really that. do all that stuff? 
stuff too. It's the A regulations. You have, no, you don't you have, have to congratulate the, the medallion no. flyers. Okay, so, so maybe that's not part of FAA regulations. Maybe that's more like you know the company. Uh, the company rules. But, yeah, but they still went through the whole thing. Now I'm imagining there were all these like ghost flyers on the plane with you <laughs> who are like appreciative of your applause. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't want to. I don't want to mention any companies, but is that the company where if you wear the sports attire, you get seated first? It is not that company. Okay. Yeah, and <laughs> and also that if I if I were wearing that sports attire, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> I would still get seated last or first. Or, I mean, or, yeah, I, in this case, first and last. I think I feel like if you didn't get seated first on this flight, you should really complain <laughs> about that. I had priority. Um, it was interesting because the flight was like so far delayed that they diverted everybody, but the computer still listed like a number of passengers still going on this flight. So the, you know, the gate agent like did his magic and got me on the flight and <laughs> then it like opens the door and like, it's, he's like, you know, go ahead, just, just go walk in. But as I'm walking in, he makes the announcement. Okay. If there's anybody in the area still <laughs> trying to get to Seattle on flight, you know, dot, dot, dot. He's like, this is your one and only only boarding call. Do you want to say anyone, Seattle, yeah, anyone, Seattle, anyone. anyone in the area, Seattle. And there were still no takers. I thought you were going to say he just opened the door enough for you to squeeze through and then just, just squeeze through. Go, 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 go. And he's like, really, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We do this all the time. Uh, I think the people that were probably like the most surprised or, or uh, put off by the experience were the gate agents in Seattle when we landed. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, because they had to do the whole thing for yeah. you. Yeah. Well, and they're, for you, yeah, and you're for, not even paying, right? You're, right, you're just exactly. like, a, and they're just like, really, thanks, because we thought we were going home. home. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, the, so I did mention there was another flight attendant that worked that. Um, she had to interrupt her Mother's Day hike with her boys. And so we treated her, we treated her to dinner and so Oh, that was nice. That was nice of you all to her do as as our mother because both of our mothers are states away. So yeah, that, nice. that uh, well, that was nice that you. Yeah, it was, and it was nice to have dinner with her and get to know her and hear like you know her her life story. Did she sit several feet away or several tables away, like during the flight when she was at the back of the plane and you were at the front or did she sit? <laughs> no, she Never sat mind, that fell flat. That fell flat. I, I got what you were trying to, <laughs> to, to recreate that experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I said several feet away and I was like, yeah, that just sounds like COVID. <laughs> like, <that's Right>. just, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I got my second shot on Friday. I'm very oh, excited. How you so, feel? Hey, nice. I uh, well, you know, I didn't plan to do anything over the weekend, and Saturday I was I was a little um, worn out, run down, but I was, I'm I expected it to be really bad, and it wasn't. So I'm kind of glad I 
had, you know, I'm glad that I didn't plan to do anything over the weekend. So, yep. Yep. Unlike last weekend. Unlike last weekend, because I did, I went to Dog Mountain. Um, I think we're going to be joined by Rebecca and Mark any minute here. But yeah, I uh, I went to Dog Mountain and everything I've read about Dog Mountain, which is a great hiking trail uh, in the Columbia River Gorge near, what is it, Stevenson, Washington. And everything I've read about Dog Mountain says, wow, this hike was a lot harder than I expected. Wow, it was a lot harder than I expected. And still, the hike was a lot harder than I expected. (laughs) It was so hard. I was sore for days. I was like, why am I walking? I should be on my bike. So, yeah, it's it's a great spot. Lots of nice wildflowers up there. So I'm hearing you're gonna bike to Dog Mountain? Is no, that, oh my that, goodness. Is that the subtext of this? <laughs> no, I did go for a bike ride the next day though and help help. Hello, hello hey. to Mark and Rebecca. Nice to see hey. you all. Hello, you welcome. Hi. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us. We were just talking about various hiking activities and why it was a mistake to do anything except by bike for me because I was sore for days after a very steep hike a couple weekends ago. It is interesting, though. I did a a six-mile hike some time ago, and like six miles on a bike, like that's that's just someone's commute. But six miles hiking is really tough. Especially if you haven't used those muscles in a while. Yeah. Or you're going up. <laughs> that too. You're going up. <laughs> well, um, Mark and Rebecca, thank you so much for, uh, uh, I was about to say thank you so much for introducing yourselves. Thank you so much for joining us. And I was going to, um, so I'm Joan. Uh, my co-hosts are Aaron and Armando. And um, I'm wondering if you all, um, I know you're both professors at the University of Oregon. Uh, can you just introduce yourselves to our listeners? Tell folks a little bit about you and what you all do. And, um, and then we have a lot of questions about the, about your latest project. Uh, okay, sure. Um, I'm Rebecca Lewis. I'm an associate professor in um, planning public policy and management at the University of Oregon. Um, I also co-direct a center called the Institute for Policy Research and Engagement. Um, most of my research focuses around land use policy and growth management and housing. Um, and I look at how land use policy intersects with climate change and transportation. Um, and so Mark and I overlap in this land use transportation space. Yeah, so hi, I'm Mark Schlossberg. I'm a professor of planning public policy and management in the same uh, department or school at the University of Oregon. And I co-direct a different institute called the Sustainable Cities Institute. And the area of my work in general is how to redesign cities so more people can walk, bike, and take transit more of the time or scoot nowadays. Um, but a big emphasis of that is really on um, bicycle transportation. Um, I really see it as a big um, key in our country as a as a boundary spanner, uh, you know, for our land use system. Sort of the overlap there with Rebecca. So given our land use sprawling pattern, the bike to me seems like the really the right transportation mode to sort of transition. I mean, in addition to being good in itself, but just transitioning across some of our our poor land use decisions over the last seventy years. So you, okay, so you all have, I think, both been working on a bigger project called Rethinking Streets, right? So this one is not, this one that you just did was, was like in a series of 
of projects you've been doing about rethinking streets. And this um, latest one is rethinking streets during COVID-19. But can you tell us just a little bit more about the rethinking streets project generally? Sure. So there's three books in the series so far, and there are three publicly available, free to download um, case study, very visually oriented, very publicly accessible type books. There's three in the series. The first one is called Rethinking Streets. So that's it. The second one is called Rethinking Streets for Bikes. And the third one is, as you said, Rethinking Streets in COVID-19. And the it's a funny story how the how this whole series came about. Um, the first one, the first Rethinking Streets book, it was really focused on kind of like complete streets projects in general. And it came about uh, because in the city of Eugene, there was this really, really, really long debate whether to transform a street that had two travel lanes in each way for cars into one travel lane for each way for cars, a center turn lane for cars and bike lanes on the sides. And this is a, a redesign that's happened hundreds, if not thousands of times across the country, always for good outcomes for everyone involved, whether it's drivers or cyclists or pedestrians or the businesses along it. And yet the city of Eugene was like, just like just couldn't make a decision, couldn't make a decision. And they kept going out to the public asking for their opinion. And there was no need actually to ask the public because this is like practice that we know how to do it and how to work. And that was very frustrating to me. And so what I wanted to do was create a, a book, a case study book that showed completed examples from around the country and put it in language that lots of different people could understand so that the power of the traffic engineer was not the dominant power making decisions when it comes to life and land use and place and other modes and all of that. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to sort of put together these cases that showed, look, like the world's not going to end by doing this thing that we've done all over the place. And you can look at a small town or a big city or a conservative place or a liberal place like it it works. So stop dilly dallying and just put the put the thing in. So that was I don't even know how many years ago the first one came out. That same strip of street in Eugene has still is just now finally after like a pilot project finally being uh, redone. I don't know what we're like five seven years into it. I'm, I don't know. So that's how the first one started. Um, and Rebecca wasn't involved in that one, but the. The, the result of that book was was really phenomenal. Just the, the, the amount of downloads from around the world across sectors that we targeted. So traffic engineers, transportation planners, urban designers, elected officials, general public, a- activists, or just like community people who want to do things in a different way, um, you know, students, faculty. So broad, broad public um, and giving language and examples to be able to advocate for change locally and take some of that inordinate power away from the traffic engineer to control everything that happens in our, on our streets. That, that was, that was the first one. And then what well, was a good idea? So then what the, the, I'll, I'll continue on the, um, the examples in the, in the book in that first one for biking weren't so great. They're like complete street projects and the bike stuff was like, fine. It was better than it was before. in the examples we showed, but as someone who, who teaches um, bicycle transportation specifically at the university level, it, it did pain me a little bit to include examples that were, you know, that, that they provided something for cyclists, but really weren't the examples of how we want to design the system. 
So the second one, Rethinking Streets During Bikes, uh, for bikes, um, was specifically aimed at showing a high quality, you know, modern type of bicycle transportation projects that have been happening around the U.S. And then this latest book that Rebecca and I did together was really trying to take advantage of the current moment, which is there's been a period of rapid changes, um, rapid need need to change our streets rapidly to meet a variety of, you know, social needs, whether it's movement or placemaking, um, uh, being spatially distant while we're walking or biking, but just sort of a quick rethink of our streets without having to go through these this long, laborious, like public engagement process, just to do, just to just to redo our streets. So again, these are these are projects that we featured that were mainly temporary during COVID changes, and some might become permanent. Some might have already just been temporary, and some are unknown still as cities are sort of wrestling with how to what what comes sort of next as we open up or what we need to do with our streets. So one of the things that I think is interesting, well, first of all, it's great. It was great to see that you had examples from all over the world. These aren't just examples from the U.S. And there were a range of some, I mean, some were just super inexpensive changes to make in terms of not necessarily needing to add, you know, it's not like cities had to deploy tons of money to make these changes. Do you think that... Um, do you think this was a case f for some of the changes that you saw where like the departments of transportation or whoever had these changes that they wanted to make, or do you think that they came up with this stuff? I mean, and I know you may not know in all cases, like was this stuff that they were thinking about already and the pandemic sort of gave them an excuse to do it or a, a reason to do it without, you know, five years of public input or was this the kind of thing where they were the pandemic happened people were using streets differently and then cities reacted to that I mean probably the answer is both but yeah can you speak to that a little bit where the ideas came from and yeah, I'll get um, started there. I think it's it was totally a mix, uh, as you suggested. Um, some places, I mean, and a lot of this was coming from, um, you know, people want to be outside. Um, our current public spaces are more crowded, particularly in larger cities. So how do we set aside room for people to walk and bike? The other big force here was um, commercial spaces and restaurants um, and wanting to sort of throw a bone, if you will, to some of the restaurants to give them some space. And so the projects that we highlight in the book are this really broad mix. Some of them are bike focused. Some of them are dining focused and that sort of thing. And so um, in some instances, I think that what these cities were doing was, you know, new and novel and something they hadn't necessarily thought a lot about. And other times, I think that they were replicating what, you know, other projects they had done on smaller scales in other places um but it was a really broad mix and it was a really broad mix of permanence versus temporary nature um, and that sort of thing so some of these were really quick fixes they don't always look like the the best examples but they were a trial run of doing a pilot and doing it much more quickly than even that project mark talked about um, a lot of times when cities do pilots it still takes a million dollars and five years to do it and all of these things rolled out in a matter of a couple months a couple of weeks um, and happened really inexpensively without um, as much public debate and so it was really, I think um, one of the reasons and motivations for this project was um, to try to document this really fast paced shift to these different models um, and to, to sort of create ideas for other places in terms of how to do it and how to do it quickly and how to do it well. 
I uh, I know one of the frustrations, I don't know how much you all follow um, what goes on in Portland and, you know, we have listeners from all over, but I think there were a lot of folks in Portland who were frustrated that the city didn't do more and do more quickly, you know, that, that, um, that this was a really good opportunity to do some bigger things. Uh, but it does seem like there were, I get what were, um, were some of these projects, like were any of these things that were really big surprises where you were like, wow, did not see that coming from such and such place. Like, I guess, what was the sort of biggest surprise? What was the city that, that maybe went further than you would have expected? That's a good question. And maybe I'll respond to sort of three things that you just asked, and maybe you didn't know you just asked three things. Um, I mean, I think one of the cities that gets a lot of attention for doing things well during this time is the city of Oakland, um, which was in the middle of a transition of, of really trying to do sort of comprehensive rethink of their transportation, transportation land use, and uh, uh, was is very um, conscious conscious of trying to do uh, um, do that work equitably uh, and to uh, make sure that uh, they're redesigning streets so that works for all all parts of the community. And so this was actually a uh, for them they had some plans moving forward and this was an opportunity to accelerate and expand rapidly sort of their networks of of slow streets um, and so. So that was just really nice to see. Um, but like as Rebecca said, you know, a lot of the projects are, are, are kind of quick and temporary. And so to me, I think the the um, the bigger the hope the hope part. So I have a hope part, and I also have an equal frustration that you expressed thinking about some people in Portland wanting to do more. Um, so my hope part is that you know over the last year, especially the first you know, four to five months of lockdown pandemic, there was a real expansion of the number of people that experienced streets in a different way, right? The number of people that just by necessity uh, for their sanity or for keeping distance that just, you know, walked down the middle of the street for something to do, let alone, you know, going somewhere that they needed to go, but taking advantage of the, of the right of way space that normally isn't for them but taking advantage of it as a way to, to move and move safely. So the, just the, the, the increase in the number of people that maybe have some totally consciously understood that that whole right of way can be redesigned, but still we're experiencing their street in a different way. Maybe that carries forward so that when larger municipal discussions are going on about, you know, big, changes in transportation systems and land use and, and all that kind of stuff that the re receptivity of, of a public might be different because they've had a different experience. That's the hope. I, I don't know if that will carry forward or not, because on the other hand, you know, I'll give you my Eugene frustration, which I don't think did much at all um, during this time. But one of the things that became really um, that I heard, so I, I don't have independent verification, maybe Rebecca has independent verification of this, but during the early days of the pandemic, when the amount of car travel you know, dropped drastically, the amount of CO2 reduction attributed to sort of the reduction of car travel was the amount that is called for in our climate action plan. And the amount of car travel was almost zero, right? If you think of those early days. And so to me, like if we got, if we met our 
goal, let's just say, you know, I mean, no one wants an ongoing pandemic and lockdown to meet our, <laughs> meet other goals. But if that was a volume of car travel that needed to exist to meet our climate goals and there weren't cars on the street, to me, that's like exactly the moment to go, like, let's repurpose that space for other things and make it that when things start opening up, we have a whole totally different system in place. So there's other ways of getting around. So that didn't happen. I mean, Eugene did almost nothing, actually. They did almost nothing. There's a, there's a couple of streeteries blocks in Eugene, and that's basically the only thing that, you know, one of the top five cycling cities in the country did during this time. So I, you know, it's, my brain is both, both ways. I have this hope that there's a, there's a experience that more people have had in the street. Um, and yet I, I don't think that, um, our existing sort of decision-making structures in general have fully exploited or, um, that's not really the right word. Um, you know, done much permanent change to their streets, but we'll see, you know, I don't know. So some days I'm really hopeful and some days I'm, I'm, I fall into this skepticism, which I think is just par for the course during the pandemic. I think we're all up and down all the time anyway, uh, sometimes in the same sense, like I just did. Yeah, I was, I was about to, oh, I was about to start uh, a mini rant about Oregon and like why we're not like, what is up Oregon? Why are we not taking more advantage of this we, time? But No, I was thinking that actually <laughs> similar to the, uh, that same topic, I from your viewpoint, either Mark or Rebecca, do you think, I guess I'm going to call it conservative, Oregon's conservative opening of public areas compared to the rest of the United States specifically, um, do you think that has made a difference either way? I think one of the things that relates, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to this vibe of like, well, we're already great. We already have some of the best infrastructure in the country. Um, we already have this, both of us have these great river paths and great networks um, for getting around. And so why do we need to do more? We already have a system um, that exists, but um, in a separate research project that we kind of had to pivot because of COVID, we asked people in Eugene about how they started biking and walking during COVID. Um, and one of the things we kept hearing over and over again was that they thought that, the, you know, yes, we have great public spaces, but they're super crowded and they would love to have more spaces to, to go. And so whatever that sort of public, you know, the conservative um, public space allocation, as you call it, um, and whatever the reason for it, I think it, that residents didn't necessarily appreciate um, that as much, or at least, you know, the, the ones that responded to our survey told us that they really wished that there had been more. Um, and I think the other thing that we heard um, in that survey, and I think uh, we've heard around the country, is one of the challenges was that while there was less auto traffic, it was a lot more, it was going a lot faster. There was a lot um, more risk being taken. And so people didn't necessarily feel comfortable, you know, having their kids um, on streets um, because of this sort of more reckless auto traffic, I guess, if you will. Um, and so I think that that, again, is another missed opportunity to think about, okay, you know, when these, the auto traffic is smaller, um, how do we make a, a sort of change, particularly on our neighborhood streets? And we give some examples of that in the book around the, the slow streets and the sort of giving space for people to play and that sort of thing. And I think um, 
since public space, I think, again, going back to this Oregon thing, we have so much open, you know, we have so much federal land. We have so many great places for hiking, as you all were talking about earlier, that I think that there's probably this like, well, we don't need to do that because we're not a dense city. Um, but I think that people really valued having spaces in their neighborhoods to be able to, to go to parks and to bike and walk in their neighborhoods. And so I think that that definitely was a missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I know that early on in the pandemic before we really knew what was, you know, more okay outdoors. I think I was, I was, you know, we have this wonderful urban park in Portland Forest Park, and it was so crowded from what I was hearing that I, even though I had been going, you know, once, twice a month for a few years, I, I basically have stopped going there. You know, I mean, now it's just, I've just changed the habit, but I think lots of people appreciate being able to just, you know, walk out the door and, and go for, go for a, a walk. I, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about some of the bike projects in particular. I was, so one of the things that, as, as you mentioned, that I think is really great about this book, well, first of all, that it's online and free and open access, but also that it's so visual. There's the before and after pictures, so you can really see. Um, and I was uh, shocked and delighted by the uh, project that you highlighted in Austin, where they actually reduced the capacity for cars, it looked like, right? So they actually converted, it, it looked like it was like a four lane road. And they basically with a it was like a bridge with a really narrow sidewalk for bikes and, and pedestrians, but then they basically made it like a two-way car street, and then they took two car lanes, what had been two car lanes, and allocated them to bikes, and um, that was pretty amazing because in some, in a lot of projects, it seems like they took parking for, you know, they, they took spaces for parked cars and gave them to, you know, restaurants or bikes, but in this one, they actually reduced capacity for cars to drive, which I don't think should be shop shocking, but feels a little bit shocking right now. And um, so, I mean, I guess, did you see a lot of, a lot of that? I don't want to put you on the spot about that particular project, but, but um, it seems like it was more common for like parking to be the thing that was given up rather than actual auto travel lanes. Is that, is that right? Or Okay, I'll go. Um, so two things I want to say. The um, the design is thanks to this amazing team of students that we worked with, graduate and undergraduate students. Um, and yeah, it's I neither Mark nor I have the skills to make the book look this pretty. Um, but they were this team was amazing. Um, they also did a lot of the background research and a lot of the verification um, and that sort of thing. And so um, they're they're all great um, humans uh, that were involved in this project. Um, the other thing I want to note before I respond about that specific project is there's a broader database of projects that Tab Combs. Um, created um, that I think is also publicly available um, that has, you know, the, a huge um, list of all the projects. Um, we picked a select number for the book and we tried to get a diversity of of region and diversity of different sort of um, types of projects. And so, and we, you know, tried to get good ones or ones that we thought were good examples. Um, but I think it's, it's tough to answer some of those questions around like commonality and that sort of thing, because we were doing this so fast, we didn't really have a chance to, to say sort of meaningful, you know, numeric um, estimates of that. But um, I do think you raise a really good point 
um, a lot of times it's really easy to repurpose, not, it's not easy, but it's sometimes easier to repurpose, um, travel lanes, um, that were used for parking or so you or road space that was used for parking, um, then road space that's used for cars. But I think that during, um, this time, given the decrease in, in travel overall, and given the decrease in parking, um, we saw that happen more. Um, but one of the things I think about this particular project is that it is more of a through fair. Um, and so that's why you see the, the repurposing of um, of this the space um, from <clears throat> moving traffic as opposed to parked cars. Um, the other thing I'll say is that a lot of times um, that parking space was reallocated for things like dining, um, particularly in downtown um, places near businesses or um, the the sort of flex zones in the curb. Um, you still see remnants of that um, in cities where there's um, pickup spots for for cars to visit restaurants. And so I think part of what's going on here is just a difference and and before street typology. Um, but I think it is you know it's it's nice to see um, the repurposing of space um, from moving auto traffic um, to bicycles instead. Maybe I can just, just add this a, a good moment to just give a brief sort of primer of how the book is laid out for anyone listening. So as you mentioned, so each each case in here is a four-page spread. It's really beautiful. Thank you to this amazing student. Like it really is. It's just, it's nice. It's minimal text, but the right amount of text. So page one always has a before and an after picture of the of a project or of the street. Page two has the before and after cross section of the street, but in a graphical form with the widths of each lane as it was allocated, you know, beforehand sidewalk, travel lane, parking lane, bike lane, whatever it was, and their width before and after. So you can so you so you can look at that. And generally planners like that. Um, then also on page two, there's just some basic information, like around, is it a temporary project, the type of street, how, how like physically long is the project, um, who, is the, who is the sort of uh, entity in charge of that right-of-way, and then how much space before and after was allocated, what we called human space, so for, for walking and biking versus for car travel. So how much of that right-of-way sort of changed before and after, and then some key outcomes. It's also on that second page, and then page three and four are just, basically bullet points and images that help tell the story a little bit, give a little bit of, you know, flesh out the story a little bit to give you a little bit of context of where is that place, what was going on, maybe what were some of the reactions. So page one and two is pretty standard across all the cases. Page three and four is a little bit more variable based on you know, what we could uh, dig up to help tell tell the story a little bit. And it's it's very easy to sort of flip through at any pace and and, and, and grab the information that's, that's most meaningful to you based on, you know, where, where you sit in your community and sort of what power you, you hold or what power you want to try to grab uh, to, to, to understand or to do things differently. Well, and it's definitely, I mean, it's, I was, I, my, I was going to say it's not academic, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is it's definitely written for like a popular or a professional audience, right? Like it is very accessible. You don't have to be a planner or an engineer to, to uh, understand what's being communicated in that book. And I guess, so then I guess what I would say is how would you, I mean, you know, if, if all of your dreams of impact could come true, how would you like folks like, um, if, if, if they, if, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are very active in their communities and how would you like folks to use this? What are some of the ways that you think that people could use this to, you know, 
lobby for change or, or whatever? Like what, you know, in your wildest imagination, what would you like to activate folks to do with this? It's a good question. I'll go first, but then I'm really curious what Rebecca has to say. (laughs) Um, That's a great question. Um, And, you know, I think a lot about um, how to make change happen. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it's through more academic research, generally speaking. Um, we know in this regard, um, like we know what to do. We know what we need to do to address climate change. We know what we need to do to, if, we want, if we're serious about making our city so that more people can use a bike more of the time. We know what to do. We know how to design it. We know what the issues are, et cetera. So the, the problem isn't lack of knowledge. It's, it's how to put that knowledge into practice. And uh, there's a there's a couple big sticking points with changing um, practice at the municipal level. And, and it goes back to that office of the traffic engineer and, you know, I'm a planner, so I get to, to battle with engineers a little bit in this. Um, so sorry a little bit for the broad brush, but in general, um, the profession of traffic engineering is taught uh, that the purpose of the street is to move cars quickly and unimpeded. Uh, that's what you learn in school. That's what your professional exam covers. Your professional exam doesn't cover cycling at all. And then when you work for a, a city, you know, that's what you do based on uh, some sort of professional guidebooks and the professional culture around that job. And then because we have designed our cities for the last 70 years, basically to socially engineer us into, be, into car dependency, it's a, it's a reinforcing cycle that the public wants that same thing out of the road that the traffic engineers keep approving. And so what I hope people can do with this book, with these, these books and other resources, there's other resources out there that do similar things, just basically either basically to go to elected officials and say, look, like changing streets, like, like these examples in this book that are done, these are not hypothetical sort of Photoshop things. These are completed projects. The world doesn't end. People are happier. Businesses do better. Like, come on already. It's 2021. Let's stop thinking of our streets in this old era. We have, our challenges are too urgent. They're too big. Uh, If your staffing doesn't understand what to do, either get rid of them or send them to to modern, to training, to modernize their skill set and their perspective. Um, So that's a, you know, I don't know. That's still sort of too slow of a process, but that's the hope for this type of resource, that it gives more capacity to more people to have confidence of being able to articulate what they want using some of the language that's sort of the bureaucratic inside engineering language that makes decisions. So I'm just hoping, I'm, for me, I hope that you know, more people can be a little bit more effective and just say, like, why can't we have this in our community? Like, come on, like, what's the problem? Why can't we have it? So a big piece of all of that is changing the default notion of what our streets are. So right now, the default understanding of our street is that it's a place to move and store private vehicles. And that anything that deviates from that default position requires an inordinate amount of process and engagement and and baby steps. And so if we had an inverse of that, if the default role of our streets was for for places to be and to 
you know, get around by walking, biking, and scooting in transit. And that anytime we wanted to optimize car travel, we had to justify it. That would be really cool. So it's sort of, I'm hoping people can use this book to at least sort of balance out the way these decisions are made or the way the default understanding of what our public right of way is for and who it's for and what it can be used to do differently. That's, that's my take, but maybe Rebecca is more articulate and quicker. I don't know about that. I think for me, it's mostly about pace of the, you know, the, all the stuff happens so quickly and that things happen so slowly um, in cities and in city processes. And so, you know, look at, at what you can actually do if you just move quickly um, and look at what, you know, how great it is to do pilots. These are, these were all, all fairly quick and fairly inexpensive um, and didn't use a ton of materials. Um, and yet they sort of gave this opportunity for people to use the space differently. And so I think those, you know, the sort of the fast and the quick um, examples and, you know, them, them being all over the country. And so maybe not every single example works in every single city, um, but that this can be a source of inspiration for people. Um, and to, like to what Mark said, you know, an opportunity to go to elected officials and say, we want this in our community. Um, how do we have it? Let's, let's push in this direction and let's not make this harder um, than it has to be. Um, my funding is always a huge challenge, um, but this, you know, these cities found ways to overcome the, the funding challenges and set aside the money. Um, even, when they sort of knew that um, revenues were going to be declining and cities are kind of facing these issues now with revenues, they still did it. Um, and so, you know, if these cities can do this as quickly as they did um, in a time of a pandemic and budget crises, why can't we do this during normal times and why, why does it take so long and some sort of so much energy um, to get there? There's, you know, there's, there's lots of need um, for public engagement in certain aspects of this, um, but the, the sort of way that we draw this process out and how long it takes is really challenging and particularly I think the other thing I'll say that I think is it's kind of challenging to, to engage with in the book and it's challenging to engage with in general is that we need a system so some of these things worked really well because we weren't all going to work um, you know and people were just kind of out recreating a lot of times um, on on bikes um, and walking and things and so um, the network part didn't matter as much but if we spend seven years on each individual street section, that's, you know, the, the pace of things goes so slowly. And so um, one of the things I'm really interested in currently is sort of how we think about this broad system of transportation, how that aligns with housing um, and how we make sure that those two things are synced together. Um, and so I think sort of thinking about, you know, how we consider this network approach and how we consider how everything gets pieced together instead of things being on a small scale is really important as well. So um, during the pandemic, we saw this big bike boom, right? We saw, you know, bikes being sold out, it seemed, for, or, or much harder to get. And then uh, I guess there was also like a big skateboard boom. And then the continuation of what had been had a, a roller skating boom. Maybe those were on a smaller scale. I'm sure there's some other, maybe there was a scooter boom too. I, I, I think the things are booming things that you can ride in the streets. And I'm, um, I'm curious to know, um, well, first of all, there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing, right? Like some of this, some of this was all part of the same thing, right? Like people had more time. They wanted to do stuff outside. They wanted to stay close to home, but, um, if you read the tea leaves, do you think that uh, these, I mean, specifically the bike boom, but if you have thoughts about roller skates and skateboards too, um, are these things going to, are these 
things going to last and are they going to at all influence what people are looking for? Or do you think that this was just sort of a blip? I mean, I, it, to the extent, you know, again, this is reading the tea leaves. What do you, what do you think? Is this going to have a meaningful impact now that people have more bikes? I can offer a little bit from what we heard in our, our survey and Eugene, um, one of the things we asked and we, so we did this survey basically during the period of lockdown, it happened at the end of, or, you know, lockdown in Oregon, um, stay at home orders before things started to kind of open up in a phased approach. And so we asked about what they'd done over the last couple months and then what they thought would happen for different modes of transportation moving forward. There was a lot of skepticism about transit and sharing in general. Um, but on the whole, users of all types thought that there was going to be more biking and more walking um, after the pandemic for um, the purposes of kind of utilitarian, utilitarian needs, not just recreation. Um, and I think... I, I think you're right, sort of. I don't have a great hypothesis about the recreational side of things, but um, I think that if we provide infrastructure for people and we make it, they make them feel safe and we make this an enjoyable experience um, and we sort of show them that this is possible, then there are chances to continue this. But, um, you know, I think traffic has picked up in a lot of cities over time. Um, I was just looking for a link. Um, Streetlight Data did some, some work um, last year that showed how much biking had increased in all these cities um, during the pandemic. And it was sort of huge increases. Um, but I think that now that bike are competing with cars again um if we're not creating safe spaces in this network are they going to get you know scared off of, of using their bikes again um so i think this is a really important chance to take that that seated interest um and figure out how we can encourage that moving forward i'll, I'll add i think what the bike boom does is it provides the potential for for more people to to bike, but as Rebecca said, if there's no change in infrastructure, it's not going to result in anything uh, for the same reasons that it wasn't resulting in anything before is that, you know, most people don't want to feel at risk on their bike and most of our infrastructure um, makes them feel that way. But I, the one thing that you didn't mention that I, that I do think uh, is a catalyst for changing our street streets uh uh, that will come back sort of after the pandemic are the e-scooter share systems. Um, to me, those are the those are the game changers, uh, particularly for for anyone who's on a sort of a space efficient sort of mode of travel, like a bike or a scooter or skateboard, wheelchair for that matter. Um, and, and the difference is that the that scooters just get used by different people more often and. Uh, the infrastructure still is crap, but there's more people sort of out using it. And so forcing cities basically to think about their infrastructure in a different way. So this is, this is the model that Washington DC did around biking. Uh, it was not a good place to bike uh, at all for forever uh, until they brought in bike share and it was still a crappy place to bike, but you had a lot of tourists biking around, you know, looking at all these amazing monuments and buildings and excitement of being in DC. And, you know, if basically forced city um, folks to, to rethink how their streets were made because it just doesn't work for anyone in any mode, you know, it's, it's East coast, it's fast paced, a lot of car honking and you can't have just like, you know, zoned out, you know, tourists, doing zoned out tourist things like it's a bad mix. And so you, you had to separate those things. And so 
So the bike share system was explicitly done by the person who was sort of in charge of the, of the transit system at that point. It was, was it purposefully done to force, to spur, to catalyze, whatever word you want to do, to change the infrastructure. Because you need the infrastructure. There is no chicken and egg. If there's no infrastructure, there is no usage. Where the, the usage is minimal, and and that it doesn't meet any of our of our goals. You you can't have users to in general to create infrastructure. Except, I do think the scooter is the one outlier to that in uh, where it creates a user base that demands an infrastructure be created. Like you can't, as a city, can't have scooter share systems and be blind to creating the infrastructure to their use uh, in safe ways on the street. So. I, I don't think that the bike boom is the catalyst. I, like, if cities were smart, they would act on it. But I'm not seeing cities being smart in that way. So, if scooters do come back uh, in full force, I think that those will be the catalyst. And then the bonus will be all this bike boom that's happened now has a bigger user base ready to just like be there in a way that that maybe wasn't before. That's how I, that's how I'm thinking about it. I am. I'm just thinking about where the scooters went, where, when, like they were, it's like they were everywhere for a while. And then they, it was, it was before the pandemic that they started disappearing from the, is, is this happening everywhere? Have scooters been disappearing off the streets of America everywhere? Well, like, or just Portland? Well, here in Portland, we were still in the pilot and the pilot ended. And that's when the they started pilot pulling, ended. They were pulling the scooters, but they're back now. I mean, they're, they're not back as much as they were because nobody's really going places to use them but there's well we don't have as many we don't have as many people downtown right now which is the yeah right okay so scooters are are are, that's interesting that you see the scooter as being sort of yeah i mean it makes sense it's super it's very accessible and you can you know if you only want to go uh five blocks it still is going to be a faster on a scooter whereas by the time you get a bike share bike it might you know might not be that much faster to ride your bike versus scoot hmm. that's interesting so the scooter the scooter is what what's going to save us huh what's going to save oh. our cities is the e-scooter <laughs> you know and i think it's for people who are really interested in cycling cycling infrastructure and having getting around by bike just would be a normal way of getting around for more people uh I think that we should completely see the scooter as an ally. It's it's small, it's space efficient, it's low carbon, maybe not no carbon. Uh, they're getting more durable, so sort of the critiques of the sort of disposable nature of the early early and versions. They, yeah, and they fit well in bike lanes, right? Like I, when the scooters were out in force, it seems to me that they were using bike lanes, that that was a better place for them than the sidewalks, especially if the sidewalks yeah. were busy. So yeah, no, nobody wants scooters on sidewalks. Nobody, no. scooter, I mean, the only reason that anyone on a scooter or a bike or a skateboard or anyone would go on a sidewalk is when the street is crap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, no user wants to, be dodging around pedestrians or doors opening for shops or whatever. Um, so we are going to have to come up with a, with a new name uh, for the bike lane. Uh, so we yeah. actually, we had students at the U of O a couple of years ago, we gave them a challenge uh, to come up with a new name. And so the, the winning student uh, did a nice name and a really great design uh, and called them smile lanes. Cause who wouldn't want to travel in a smile lane? And I don't know if I'll get this exactly right, but it's an acronym for a shared, Shared mobility, integrated lane with emergency access, smile. And so 
the idea of like a bike lane needs to go away. And so we need to have space that is for, you know, the way that I, you know, micro mobility is, is what it's sometimes called bikes and scooters or, you know, sort of small, small footprint, space efficient, low or no carbon point to point um, transport is a, is a way to go. And, you know, if we think about the, the scooter, um, like within a year or a year and a half of the scooter somehow appearing out of nowhere, the number of trips Americans took by scooter equaled the bike share trips that had been building over a decade. So just the accessibility to that way of moving was somehow much greater for a bigger range of people. So if that's the catalyst to get really wide you know, protected bike lanes on all of our busy street, really good protected intersections on every busy intersection, really good networks of neighborhood greenways and slow streets on our residential areas. Fantastic. There's like, that's a great, I'm happy to share that space in that way. I am. Um, I also, I want to pivot away just a little bit, um, but also ask you all to just read the tea leaves a little bit on something because I have just been, uh, I've been talking about this a lot on the podcast, but uh, what we've been hearing from Mayor Pete, or now Secretary Pete, uh, about streets and highways, highways in particular, is been completely startling <laughs> to me, um, you know, especially after uh, after the Trump administration and um, the kinds of things he's talking about, about, you know, the racism in the interstate highway system. It's been, I, I don't think it's a surprise to folks who are in the know about these things, but it's just not really a discourse we've heard on a national level um, outside of like, maybe like these kind of urbanist or traffic interested circles. And I'm just wondering if you all see the kinds of things he's talking about kind of aligned with what you're talking about, can it feed in with some, I mean, he's talking about trains and transit and things like that. And do you, so what are your thoughts on that? I mean, are you feeling at all optimistic when you hear some of the things he's saying or? I can go first. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you're right. It's definitely a change um, from what we've been hearing in the past. And I think a change from previous, you know, even democratic administrations, there is a huge shift in how we're talking about transportation at a federal level. Um, and I think what is most interesting to me is trying to think about, again, ways that we can invest in, um, you know, lower carbon modes of transportation on a massive scale that actually helps us build out networks um, in cities. And whether that means tying transportation um, to housing um, in some sort of way to try to think about increasing density alongside investing in transit and biking and walking infrastructure. Um, I think that's that's a really positive move. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about the, the scale of what we're seeing in infrastructure. Um, one of my favorite things I saw last week was a Politico graphic, or a couple weeks ago, I think, Politico graphic that showed what the American Society of Engineers says we need for infrastructure versus the Democratic infrastructure plan versus the Republican infrastructure plan. And even the Democratic infrastructure plan doesn't go far enough um, for what the ASD says we need, um, which I think puts it in context for how far behind we are in funding our infrastructure system. Um, the other thing that I've been following more closely, just given some of my background um, and interests, is the, the financing side of it. So how are we going to pay um, for this transportation? 
And how are we going to pivot away from a gas tax um, in an equitable manner? And so um, thinking about things like road user charges, which we have in a pilot form in Oregon and deploying those more um, extensively, but actually building some of our values into the system such that less space efficient, um, private, um, more carbon intensive um, modes of transportation pay a greater share relative to more space efficient um, and um, uh, carbon efficient modes of transportation. Um, so I'm very curious to see where things go. Um, I think we've been, you know, the joke about infrastructure week being every week um, in DC is not lost on me. I think, you know, we got really excited a month ago. It's like, okay, it's really happening. Um, but I think that the pace of federal um, change is still really slow. Um, so I'm optimistic. I'm definitely more optimistic than I normally am about these sorts of things, but I'm still sort of waiting to see uh, where it goes. Yeah, I'll mirror some of that. Um, I mean, it's fantastic to have a Secretary of Transportation uh, taking bike share to work. I think in, in one week, I was part of a sort of national geek out of, you know, seeing the images of Secretary Pete, you know, on bike share bike. And I think that same week, I saw like a picture of the premier president or prime minister of Denmark you know, getting to work on a bike. And I was like, yeah, okay, great. We're sort of now in the, in the game, right. You know, around biking and infrastructure and all of it, like our people in charge are getting around by bike. How cool is that? Um, I think that the, so I, you know, I love all the the message, the, the rhetoric, uh, the knowledge of the role of transportation from you know the, the sort of freeway sort of, the legacy of freeway building on communities of color all the way up to investing in new ways of getting around where I'm worried a little bit is, uh, how that will actually trickle down into actual investment at the local level, uh, both in terms of overall resources relative toward the resources that will continue to go to, to maintaining or expanding highways and how things trickle down through state departments of transportation, including Oregon's, which generally are horrible with these things. They are highway departments. And so, um, they're, you know, all that trickling down is where I'm worried. Uh, a year ago, a few of us uh, in, in our in our um, school came up with a, an interesting program that we would love to see the federal government do. It's called 30 by 30 by 30. It was very sort of fun from a marketing standpoint. And the idea of this of this program would be that it's a 30 billion dollar fund for leader cities to get to 30% non-auto mode share by 2030, right? So it's not for every city, but it's for those cities that are poised to actually go for it and redoing their cities so that 30%, right, which becomes tipping point levels uh, of redesign, um, but to have 30% non-auto mode share uh, by 2030, that there'd be this fund for those cities to draw from. So again, not for every city, no one's being forced to do anything, but it's actually real money to do, to implement real aggressive plan and create, as we're supposed to in this country, sort of the experimental models in different places so that we can learn from one another about what's possible. So, you know, I think there'd be a handful of cities in the country, some medium sized, some big, that uh, would take up the challenge. Um, so I'm worried that the funding stream that will trickle down won't exactly match this type of rhetoric um, that will end up putting too much energy into just electrifying single occupancy automobiles um, rather than 
also uh, redesigning systems so that we're rest, less reliant and dependent on the automobile for everything. Um, so I, I'm, you know, wait to be seen. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interests that go into, you know, making legislation and, and, and funding happen. So I'm still waiting to see if the, the really good language and intent that's coming out in a new way, which I'm very excited about, will actually be matched um, yeah, matched by the, the way that the money, money flows from there. Well, right. Because, uh, the last, uh, the last Oregon department that I want getting a huge pile of money is the Oregon department of transportation. I do not want them to have any more money because they already we have finally way... fund that freeway. We can yeah. I mean, that's what they want to do. I mean, I live, you know, right near I-5 in downtown Portland, which they're trying to widen. And it's, um, yeah, they're a highway department. That's what they, they're, they know how to build roads. And it doesn't seem like even with a tremendous amount of pressure, they have any interest in kind of seizing the moment. Um, and then, I mean, I would like them when, Mark, when you were talking about, um, if we could retrain people, I was like, send ODOT. <laughs> I want to retrain ODOT. <laughs> like, let's, you know, that would, that, that's who I nominate <laughs> to, to be retrained. Well, it's a, actually, thank you for the opening. So one of the things that Rebecca and I also do is we, we lead a study abroad course. So every other year we take um, students and uh, we have scholarships where we bring four professionals from Oregon with us, and we spend a month in Denmark uh, and the Netherlands just being, meeting with local professionals, but experiencing 100% of the time getting around like local people do on bike. And the purpose is to bring, again, students and some professionals uh, to these places so they can see what it's actually like to be in some of the world's top cycling cities. You know, so like in the cities of Utrecht in the Netherlands or Copenhagen, Denmark, half of all trips are, are by bike, half by everyone, age eight to 80. And so uh, videos don't do it justice. The narratives don't do it justice. Academic papers don't do it justice. What does it justice is being in these places on a bike long enough to understand that you are not in anyone's way when you're on a bike and that you are seen by all other road users and that any street that you turn on, you're allowed to be there without question, without having to look over your shoulder and be paranoid. And that just takes time to get to that point. And then once you get to that point, you can actually start understanding how it works, how it's funded, you know, the social change process to get there. And so one of the things that Rebecca and I, are really, you know, interested in is, I mean, yes, we want to bring students because they're the, you know, next generation workforce and it's really cool. Um, but we're really interested in also using it uh, to bring those professionals uh, to have that experience, to actually then have some colleagues who with that shared experience so that they can come back to Oregon and put into, hopefully put into practice more robustly, more quickly, some of the some of the things that they that they learned. So it's it's uh, not as big as a program as we would like. We we've brought eight people so far, um, professionals, um, but that is in the in the retraining. That's our little effort on the retraining side. 
Well, if you, um, I don't know, I imagine that was paused at least this past year, but I, I don't know if you have one coming up soon, but if you send us some information about it, I'll be glad to include that in our show notes for anybody who, who is interested. And although I can't support abduction, if, you know, <laughs> I'd be, if so, I would be glad to encourage very like, yeah <laughs> like hmm, how do we get <laughs> i was about to say like do, does it has to be voluntary <laughs> do, we, do, we have to, do we just like throw them in your in your van <laughs> yeah just yeah they'll, they'll when they get to denmark that that's when they know <laughs> um well where can folks uh i mean it's we'll, we'll link to the ebook from our uh from our show notes, um, Rethinking Streets During COVID-19, but where else can folks find out more about what you all do? Where should they go to look for you and, and the kind of work you're doing? Well, all three of the books are at rethinkingstreets.com. Uh, it's non-commercial. Uh, there's a little form that you fill out before you can download. That form just goes to me, so I have to at least count the number of downloads. And it's nice for me to see who... Mm-hmm like the range of people who have downloaded it. So there's three books there. And both Rebecca and I are easily Googleable <laughs> uh, uh, academics are pretty, trans, you know, our lives are just that sort of easy out there. So we're easy to find. The study abroad information is, you know, pretty easy to find. Um, we're accessible humans. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, if anyone wants to get in t- touch with us, that's fine. Just don't complain about parking to us. If you want us to, well, you can to Rebecca. She's much better at being calm, but I lose patience with people complaining about removing of their parking. So don't do that to me. Have a whole, um, but yeah, we have a whole, we have our whole episode next week is about parking. <laughs> That's all we're talking about next week. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, so we'll be complaining about parking, but in a different sort of way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a totally understood yeah, yeah. and appropriate. There's too much parking. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Just as long as someone Uh, says that in 2021, no city should have minimum parking requirements. It's ridiculous. Like just flat. I'm pretty sure. Um, Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Well, that doesn't come up. Just say that you can hear. (laughs) I think that'll come up. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is a, a great resource for folks and I really encourage folks to look at it. And I appreciate you both taking the time on a lovely evening to chat with us about your work and what you're doing. And I hope it inspires some of our listeners to, I don't know, talk to some of their city officials about what could be a little different. Thanks so much uh, for having us. Yeah, thanks. This was really fun. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you. What can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike? I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. It circles around the city lights. Pedal just as fast as we can into the morning light. Pedal just as fast as we can into the daylight. Pedal just as fast as we can into the night light. Pedal just as fast as we can into the letter. Your pedal just I'm pointing at you, Aaron, but I just realized oh, you can't tell that I'm pointing just, at you. You're just pointing at the screen. I thought you were just like, that's your groove. Mm. 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 Yeah, that's mm. my groove. Mm. <laughs> that's my move. <laughs> this is why it's not my a dance video move. podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody is better for not having seen that. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, from the New Republic. This came to us via Bike Portland. Forget tech bro fantasies of self-driving cars and just invest in buses already. Holy shit. I was just thinking about this exactly, specifically about the boring project that's going on in California, but we'll talk about that later. What we need are not more energy efficient cars or self-driving cars as Zimmer fantasized privately owned fleets that are available for hire, but fewer cars entirely. We need people biking, walking, taking buses and trains and subways or otherwise riding in something besides a free ranging 3000 pound metal exoskeleton with an error prone operator, digital or human. If safety is often cited as a prime reason for developing autonomous vehicles, about 36,000 Americans die in car accidents every year, then perhaps a better way of saving lives would be to have fewer cars on the road replaced by mass transit and other public options. Yes, yes, damn right. I'm all for everything that this article is saying. Yeah, me too. And I think, I think sometimes I see articles like this and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, this is so obvious. Yeah. Wait, why doesn't, why don't other, why doesn't everybody know this? (laughs) So I, I kind of did this deep dive and, and this is sort of a, a, maybe a plug for one of my, my favorite uh, YouTube video series, uh, some more news with uh, Cody Johnson. Um. Anyways, he just did like this deep dive on uh, Elon Musk and uh, essentially like, why, why is he so, so great? Why do, why do people like him so much as somebody who like had, hasn't really invented anything like somebody who just kind of funds inventions. Um, And he called out specifically like the boring project there that he did, um, the self-driving car project that he did. Uh, and one of the things that this, this like half hour, 45 minute video like pointed to was how we want to have that like Star Trek fantasy future, that, that slick, cool, futuristic you know the self-driving car totally feeds into this this jetsons cool uh future but nobody wants to like do the work to like make that future possible they want the end result before the actual uh processes involved uh example would be the funding self-driving single occupancy vehicles versus like maybe just better transit systems so everybody can ride and not just the rich things like that some crazy radical talk there Aaron I know I know <laughs> not just I, the rich I'll go back to my commie go back to your private and, plane yeah in my private plane. <laughs> yeah there goes all my all my socialist credentials all your, street, the yeah. all your street cred that's why i was like is he really telling this story <laughs> I'm, I'm 
getting kicked out of the anarchist club as I, as we talk. Look, look, it's super punk to have a private plane uh, ride that you haven't paid for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ask Billy Joe Armstrong of green day. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, Armando, we have some mail. <laughs> Let's yeah. How am I doing Rant with the over. transitions? <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me do the voice. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna point at the screen and I'll let either of you guess. <laughs> no, no, this is my this is my mail. <laughs> so a handful of episodes ago, uh, Guthrie and I were chatting about gardening, gardening, because <clears throat> I had just bought a bunch of herbs, little herb starts, and um, we were talking about growing herbs in containers. And Guthrie mentioned herb spirals. Well, and then we got this delightful email from longtime listener and Patreon supporter, Emma Rooks. Emma wrote, after listening to Guthrie and Joan talk about herbs and herb spirals a few episodes back, I wanted to share the one my girlfriend and I, mostly her, put together recently. It's still waiting on some seed starts to hurry up and get ready to be planted. So Emma um, sent this photo of this herb spiral that she and her partner, she and her girlfriend made. And um, I asked Emma if I could share it and told her that I hadn't planted my herbs yet. And Emma basically said, you can share the photo of mine once you plant yours <laughs> oh <laughs> which was super it was super wow. uh, it was hilarious no no no. it was great it was hilarious yeah. and it was motivating because you know what i did this weekend i finally planted those herbs nice so thank you emma for writing in because you know i actually i mean i've been meaning to do it like every weekend i've been meaning to do it i said this weekend i pretty much took the weekend off because from i didn't have any plans because i got my second covid shot but on Sunday, uh, I was feeling fine and I got them all planted up. So I will share photos on our Instagram account of my herbs and containers and also Emma's uh, herb spiral. So thanks to Emma cool. for writing in because it was really nice that, you know, I mean, we like bikes, but we like other things too. And it was, it was, you know, great. And then also if somebody wants to send me, uh, some ideas of what I'm supposed to do with all this episode. I don't even know. I have two, like, I guess it's used a lot in, um, in beans and oh, Mexican yeah. cooking, Anytime you cook beans, but I don't know how to use it. In it. Um, like a leaf, like so, a yeah, dried, so fresh, cut the sprigs, dry it, and then strip the, the leaves. And you just kind of like, I'm rubbing my hands together. Crum like you just kind of like do that with the leaves. Crumble and, it up. Yeah. In, in the, in the beans. Really? So, yeah. I, but I do it dry. It's not, it's not something I use fresh. Okay. I've always used it dry. Um, I've never I've had it. I've, I've never eaten it fresh. I've had fresh epizote and it always just mm -hmm. smells really strong to me. Like I, hmm. it like unappealingly strong. But it, I love I love putting it in beans. Okay, well I'm excited to use that because I'm also in the Rancho Gordo Bean Club, so I have a lot oh, of right. beans. Because <laughs> pretty soon I have a whole another six bags, so six pounds of beans showing up at my house any day now. I got to start drying some. I've got some work to do with these beans. For what, like three of you so, in the household, right? It's like. 
Yeah. How about, not yeah a, the, that's a lot of pounds of beans to go it's a, through. It's a, it's a lot of beans. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. But I don't, I was on the waiting list so long. I don't want to give up my spot. Right. You know, so, so I'm going to make some beans this week. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Next thing I know, somebody's going to write in and be like, Joan, here's some beans I made. And you can share a picture of them once you make all your beans. <laughs> once you, once I make my beans. Yeah. So anyway, thanks. It was great to hear from Emma and I'm going to um, email her back and let her know that even though I'd been planning to do it, she like gave me the final nudge. So, yeah. So, you know, uh, we want to encourage folks to send us mail. You can email to the sprocket podcast at gmail.com. And um, we would love to hear from you, whether it's about bikes or herbs. beans or herbs or chartering private, private planes private without. Flights. Okay. I didn't charter this plane. <laughs> so let's, let's be clear. I don't want this to like, let's not have any misunderstandings. This plane would have flown regardless. It was a standard mm-hmm. commercial flight. If anything, I actually made it more sustainable by being on that flight. Okay. That maybe was far reaching there. <laughs> it was maybe a little too far. Hmm. Huh. Okay. Okay. Not chartering. But if anybody wants to tell us about their, no, maybe don't tell us about chartering private. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to tell us about your private bike charters, there you go. And your skateboard charters, roller skates, you know, flying roller skate share. Yeah. 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 Flying skateboards, your e-scooters. I hear they're the future. Yeah. Reach out to us. Let us know. So we don't really have any events this week. I mean, there's Pedal Palooza coming up. Check the calendar oh, that old if thing. you're in Portland. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that old thing that we didn't have last yeah. year. All summer long, though. How awesome! I'm still oh, stoked. About all that. summer long. And if you're not in Portland, the event near you is, you know, riding your bike outside. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be connect, scheduled at your leisure. Um, I still I still catch on on our feed whenever I happen to look on our Instagram feed. I still catch some events all around. So check with mm-hmm. check with your mm-hmm. local bike cool kids, you know? Yeah, the cool kids will know. <laughs> find your find your Armando. Find, find <laughs> your find your local Armando. Ask them where they're going. Yeah. Ask them where they're going. All right. Well I think that's about it. Thanks, Armando and Aaron. And thanks to our listeners for uh, listening, (laughs) because that's what that's what you do. Because we hope. Thank you for that. (laughs) The Sprocket Podcast is produced at home. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music, which is very loud right now. Very loud. <laughs> Herb Bird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Cameron Lane. Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn Kubish, 
Eric Weiss, Doug Cohen Miller, Chris Smith, Caleb Jenkinson, JP Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Drew the Welder, Anna, Andre Johnson, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, who may or may not be in the woods, you'll have to check the website. Aaron Green, author of Re We're Like Sons and founder of the Regrainery. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Jeremy Kitchen. David Belay, Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel. EJ Finneran, Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skato. Keith Hutchinson, Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson. Ryan Tam, Jason Oftenberg, David Moore, Todd Grossbeck. Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris Barron. Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite. Dude Luna, hey, Emma Rooks, Philip M. Spartan Dale, Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative Kiwana, Sarah G. Adam D, Go Dig a Ho, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso. Isaac M, Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham. Aaron G, Rachel Moline, Jimmy Diesel. And our newest sponsor, Christopher Barnett. Thanks, Christopher. And all of our former donors and supporters who helped us get this far. Wear your helmet if you want. I mean, wear your high-vis clothing if you want, but I know not a lot of y'all have it. <laughs> <laughs> wear your retro reflectors. All right. Thanks, all. Have a good night. Good night, Bye, everybody. everybody.